Next Sunday, we'll start a new series. We're going to pick the book of Acts back up in the fall. We'll be in Acts chapter 10 when we get back to it. But next Sunday, we'll start a new series that's going to take us through the rest of the, the summer. The, the new series that starts next week is going to be called Holding Things Loosely. And, and that's just been something that's been on my mind for a while. And, and, and there are things that the Bible is very clear about. We must hold firmly. We must hold on to sound doctrine and the truth of the gospel. Um, there, there are things that we must hold. We'll talk about those specifically next week. But in the weeks after, I think there's attitudes, there's desires, there's things in life that we sometimes put a grip on that Scripture would call us to hold much more loosely than we do. I, I think God's Word prods us at times to loosen our grip on things that we are very tempted to say, if I don't have this, if I, if I can't have this desire, if I can't think this way, this attitude, um, it, it's just too hard to change. I'm not changing this. I don't want you to mess with it. And if you mess with it, you're going you're to upset me in some way. And, and I want Scripture to challenge us on those things. So we'll start that next week. For today, we'll start in Genesis 6. We're going to bounce through a number of Scriptures. Um, but Genesis chapter 6, second topic under the heading of Biblical anthropology, this was just kind of a two-week series at when we first broke from Acts. We, we talked last week about it. Biblical anthropology is essentially looking at man through the lens of Scripture. It is the belief, the, the, the very biblical belief, that you cannot understand man. You cannot understand how man is made up, how he thinks, how he acts, apart from seeing what the Creator says about man. And that's what we see in God's Word. We get our anthropology, our study of man by seeing what the Creator says about man in His Word. Last week we talked about man's knowledge, in particular the limitations of man's knowledge, especially in the area of knowing God, of, of knowing His character and His will and who God is. And, and yet, ironically, man's struggle with arrogance, with, with the presumption of knowledge that goes all the way back. We talked about this last week. The, the first temptation, the first fall in the garden is one that is really a battle of knowledge. If I can simply know this stuff, then I will be like God. I will think thoughts like God. And, and man has been on this foolish quest for this false omniscience ever since. And so we talked about knowledge. We must grow in our knowledge of God. We must regularly acknowledge our own lack of knowledge, our need for help from God. Today, I want to talk about man's evil. Theologians would call this man's depravity. We'll talk about that as we go on. But Genesis 6, there's one verse in particular, but I, I, I just want to pause because when we, you're reading through the Bible and you come to Genesis 6, this is one of those places where people tend to pause right at the beginning of Genesis 6 with an interpretive question. Not going to settle it here, but Genesis 6 verse 1 says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And immediately that launches into various interpretations on the sons of God and the daughters of man and who they are, particularly the sons of God. Interpretations range from being angelic beings, fallen angels, taking on bodily form, uh, taking part in the natural relations with women to the idea that what, what is meant here is just two different lines of humanity, a godly line and an ungodly line, a godly line and sort of an earthly line, essentially an intermarriage of unbelievers and believers. As one commentator puts it, it, it is impossible to be dogmatic about the identification of the sons of God, but what we do know is this launches into a paragraph that describes the, the proliferation of evil 
throughout God's creation, that this is the beginning of just sort of a, a rapid spread of evil, if you will, to the point that Genesis 6 verse 5 is where I really wanted to key in on, says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God describing man in humbling terms. We talked last week about the the creation and God breathing life into dust and how humbling the story of our origins is from Genesis. And here is the picture of man's wickedness. It is great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is evil continually. He is hostile to God. He is opposed to God. All of his thoughts reflect that enmity between man and God. And so his thoughts and actions are filled with darkness. This is the state of the world. It is marked by pervasive wickedness to the point that we know the rest of the story in Genesis 6, God will judge the earth with a flood. Genesis 6 is a miserable yet accurate picture of humanity, of the world, but it is a good reality check for us. I have I've gone back here often in conversations with people over the last couple of months, particularly when, when we are tempted to think that 2020 is just as bad as it can get. Uh, I, we are, are deluged with, it feels like, the effects of sin and a fallen world in one way or another on a constant basis, and there is that that sense of pervasiveness of evil and fallenness that, that just sort of dominates the headlines. It's disease, it's division, it's violence, it's hatred. All of that is just in front of us on an ongoing basis. And, and one of the consequences of, of that sort of sense, whether it's Genesis 6-5 or it's how we feel about the world today, is, is the, the temptation to despair, to react with utter discouragement at what we see around us. And, and, and sure enough, as divided as our country is, there is one thing that Americans seem to agree on, and that is things are bad. Pew Research did a poll just a month ago and asked people about the direction of the country. And not surprisingly, for as different as we all are, this was agreed on. 87%, almost 90% of those surveyed are dissatisfied with the way things are going in the United States. And then they asked them uh, what they thought about the state of the country as far as their own feelings, and, and you could pick more than one option. 71% said they were angry, 66% said they are fearful, and slightly less than half, 46% said they are hopeful. It is into that context, and I want to let scripture remind us that there is nothing new under the sun. Technology may seem to speed up the advancement of evil and immorality and spread it, but since Adam's sin, since his fall, we have lived in a fallen world cursed by that sin, cursed by God because of that sin, judged under his judgment, and we are beset by evil and by that curse of sin. So, I want us to think about man's evil. As I said to you last week, two reasons for, for these studies, for last week and this. The, the one is because the Christian worldview says we don't fully understand man until we understand what the Creator says about him in Scripture. So we need to pick topics like knowledge, like evil, different things about man, and look at them through the lens of Scripture and see what Scripture says and, and take up those subjects and study them. And then the second thing is just the, the, the constant 
press of unbiblical thinking that surrounds us, that, that's on social media, that's in the news, that's in opinions that, that we hear all the time. We are surrounded by godlessness, and that tempts us. It creeps into our own thinking, and so we need to critically evaluate these things. And so let me start by giving you two prevalent examples of popular level thinking about man and evil. I think these are very common perspectives in the world about man and evil. The first one is man is basically good, but is led astray by his environment. That man is sort of inherently decent, but it's his environment that messes him up. This is the old nature versus nurture debate. Are, are we the way we are because of our nature or because we've been nurtured to that point? Um, because you were born this way or because you learned it from people around you? Second sort of prevalent thought is man's Evil, man's evil, can be fixed with the right reforms and laws and structures and systems. Just do the right things, and the world will be a, a better place. I want to examine both of these against God's word and see where there's perhaps elements of truth that we need to see, but also see how we need to look at them scripturally. First of all, people are basically good, but are led astray by their environment. Lest you think that I'm Throwing out a straw man argument, I would argue with you this, that this is common. This is worldly thinking at its norm, that man is basically good and that something goes wrong somewhere that, that undoes the wiring. Um, this, this idea is widely being declared, particularly in light of racial division that we are seeing again and again in our country. The idea is widely put forth that people are, are not born hating one another because of their differences that they learn to. That, In fact, the argument even is that man's propensity is more toward loving one another and that it's the environment that then causes him to, to hate one another. I think he's been around for a long time. I'll take you back to the middle of the 20th century. Those of you who know me know that I am not exactly a Broadway musical um, connoisseur by any sense, but some of you have seen South Pacific. Back in 1949, the musical became a movie, um, and, and one of the issues that's addressed in South Pacific is racial division through the lens of a U.S. Marine who is dating a woman who is from a Vietnamese community and who is feeling prejudice, feeling discrimination because of this dating and feeling the, the sort of social consequences and pressure that are coming on him. And he, he breaks into song during South Pacific and among the lyrics of the song are, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be taught to hate all the people your relatives hate. It, it is surely true that Parents and peers and society have a profound impact in shaping attitudes. Otherwise, Ephesians 6, I mean, that, that, that makes it very clear when Ephesians 6 says, Fathers, bring your children up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So that it, it's very clear that God's description is that parents have a profound impact on teaching their children and discipling their children to understand who Christ is. Uh, Book of Proverbs, again, we talked about this last week, is filled with statements about a father's instruction and a mother's teaching. Listen to those things because they are important. But from God's perspective, man's evil is a matter of nurture and nature. We cannot leave that part of it off because that is the fundamental core of man's evil is who he is by nature. While parents and 
peers and society may refine how a person hates and who in particular a person hates. They may be influenced in some ways. No one has to be taught to hate. We are born with a sinful nature that is geared toward hatred. In Titus 3.3, the word of God says, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul is saying to Titus, no one needs instruction to learn how to hate. The, the state of man, apart from being redeemed by Christ, is to be both hated and to hate in return, to, to be a hater, to use the the popular cultural language. Nobody has to be instructed in that. Your, your children, if you're a parent, you saw it in your kids early on that they let you know their displeasure with certain things, certain foods, certain rules, whatever it might be. They, they let you know things that they despised pretty early on without any instruction to that effect. Uh, the people around me may influence how and who I hate, but hatred is part of man's nature. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, begins with this description. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is None who does good, not even one. That is language that Paul will pick up in Romans chapter 3 and repeat almost verbatim and add to it and strengthen it to make the point that there is none who does good, not even one. That defies what our culture would argue about man's ability to do things that are good when Scripture says, in fact, man does not naturally love God or love his neighbor. The things, even the things that he does that have the appearance of good, even those are out of motives that are not meant in sincere love to God and worship to God. They are not out of obedience to God. The ability to do that is because God has supernaturally bestowed grace. He has intervened and he has enabled his people, those whom he has redeemed, in order to do those things. But the Genesis description, the Genesis 6 description, where every intention of man's heart is only evil continually, is the state of all people who have not been saved by God's grace. We could walk through Psalm 14 and Romans 3. You can move forward a few generations from Genesis 6 to the book of Judges. And, and, and you see just horrible stories of, of man's evil in the book of Judges, the, the book that ends, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. The, the, the God is myself, my desires, my selfishness. And, and Judges records these appalling acts of evil. And it, it, it's in this cycle in Judges. God breaks into history, does intervenes in powerful ways, rescues his people in some way from an enemy, raises up godly leadership, and in no time at all, the people dismiss him and they return back to their evil ways again and again. God would give them a righteous leader for a season, and like clockwork, they would return to evil. And the reason for man's persistence in this folly of sin is what theologians call man's depravity. It's, it's what we've been reading about already. Sin corrupts our thinking and our emotions and our will and our desires and our ability to reason and our actions and our inactions. Sin affects, it impacts our whole being. 
And, and it is what enables us, that what makes us unable to do good before God, to, to please God, again, apart from his saving work. And so Genesis 6 and Psalm 14 and Titus 3.3 3 and Romans 3 all describe a condition that is not just sort of an occasional bad moment when we do the wrong thing. It is describing the, the state of being, who we are as human beings apart from Christ and it is just describing our rebellion to God and his law. Because this nature is part of who we are from conception. It, it, it is something that we receive as, as much of a, a birthright as anything else. We receive it because our forefather, Adam, sinned. That's what scripture describes in Romans 5.12 when it says, Sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam. Death came through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. He's talking about Adam and Adam's attempt to, to gain knowledge that he thought in that moment would make him to be like God, that he would be able to think the thoughts, that he could act independently of God because he would be able to discern things and not need God's help. That was rebellion against God. It was sin. And Adam, as the, the head of of the human race as our representative falls into sin and we with him. One of the most common biblical words for sin is transgression. You see it at least a hundred times throughout the, the scripture, some form of transgress or transgression. Picture transgression like drawing a line in the sand. You draw a line and you say, don't cross that line. You cross that line, you're going you're gonna to break the law. You're going to break the boundary if you do so. I, I, again, parents, kids, you know, you, you, you say, this is the boundaries. Don't, don't pass over this boundary. This is, this is the line. And if you step over that line, the way Scripture describes the word transgression, it is, it is like a declaration of war on God. It is saying, I, I disrespect you. I will not obey your law. I'm going to step where I choose to step. And God, you can't tell me what to do. You can't set the boundaries. We are all transgressors by nature. We are all lawbreakers by nature because our first father, Adam, defied God's single line in the sand. There was the one prohibition, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam defied God, became sinful, took on this now rebellious state and nature, and his corrupt nature is now passed down to all of his offspring. Adam sins, and that's why Romans 5.12 says, death now spreads to all men because death is the, the price for sin. It is the consequence of sin. Our, our tendency at this point is to argue, but I, I wasn't there. I wasn't in the garden. I didn't actually personally sin, so how do I how do I get this? How do I get labeled with this? How does this nature become my nature? And, and to make that very clear, what Paul does in Romans 5 and 6 is he contrasts Adam with Jesus and he contrasts evil with righteousness and, and, and shows how both come to be through Adam, sin and guilt and death is brought on all of mankind. We are all made guilty. We are considered in Adam. And so we are all guilty of that sin. In the same manner by which believers are now made righteous. We don't have righteousness as, as something that is inherent to us. We don't go out and earn righteousness. It is the righteousness, the perfect right standing of Christ 
before the Father that is put on us when, when he saves us. We receive righteousness. It is alien to us until it is credited to us in the same way as this guilt now has been credited to the account of all human beings. Same lesson, similar language in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know the thrust of the chapter is the resurrection, but in the course of describing the death and then the, uh, importantly the resurrection of Christ, what 1 Corinthians 15 does is remind us of why this matters, why the death and resurrection of Christ matters, because for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There it is again. Scripture is saying Adam's rebellion was applied to our account. We became guilty. We now are judged. We now are deemed worthy of the punishment of death as sinners who by nature are hostile toward God and face either punishment or are redeemed by God's grace, are rescued from out of that. This is what David writes about in Psalm 51.5 when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not commenting on the circumstances of his birth. There was nothing immoral there. What he's saying is, I was a sinner from conception. At, at, at the moment this soul came to life, it was a soul that was in rebellion to its creator. It was inherent to my nature to be sinful and opposed to God. So, Ephesians 2.3 says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're all under God's wrath, apart from the saving work that he goes on to describe in Ephesians chapter 2. But both passages there emphasizing an internal disposition that puts me at odds to God. That from the very start says, I, I don't have to learn to be a transgressor. I am one by nature. We certainly learn to be more skillful and deceptive at sin through the course of life. We certainly get our, our, our sin refined, if you will, along the way in some of the worst ways. We're, we're influenced by people and the environment around us. If I'm driving down the highway and somebody goes by me who's doing 80, something in me says, Hmm, I could maybe sort of tuck in behind him and then he would meet the officer first and so I could, I, I could sort of get away with it because somebody else is doing it. We do that all throughout life. If this person's doing it, then, then somehow that we, we justify that. And so sin certainly gets our, our, our deceptiveness, our, our ability to sin transforms over time. But the, the disposition, the nature is sinful from the start. So much so that we are destined to wrath from the start. That scripture is very clear that, that through sin, death spread to all man. All of man is under that curse of sin to experience the judgment. And death is God's just punishment for sin. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 is making clear that the death and the resurrection of Christ were not simply some good moral example of, of love for others. It was necessary Christ had to die. The sinless, perfect Son of God had to sacrifice his life on the cross to take the wrath of God for our sins so that he might stand in our place as a substitute. And by his death and resurrection is our hope. I'm the one who's guilty. When it comes to sin, popularly, culturally, we tend to downplay it, especially when it's my own sin. I've got 
generally explanations and excuses when it's my own misbehavior. Now, when it's yours and it affects me, when it affects my property or my person or someone I love, then, then I tend to see it as more terrible and wrong. But culturally, we have this sort of downplayed view of personal sin. The Bible's picture, rather, is that all sin is offense before a holy God. All sin is standing in the face of God and defying him. It is transgressing what he has given in his law, and therefore all sin is punishable by death. By the very nature of my heart as an unbeliever, I came into life offending the creator by rebelling against him and his law and in need of his mercy and grace. So man is not basically good. He is not born loving God and loving neighbor. Psalm 14.3 and Romans 3.12 says, No one does good, not even one. We do not do things that are out of righteousness, that are out of love of God, that are out of unselfish love for neighbor. We do them for whatever motives we do them for, but the only person to walk the earth who was inherently good was Jesus, and he was put to death by the evil of man, even though he did nothing to deserve that. He did nothing wrong. Jesus spoke about that in John chapter 15, how he would come in power and heal the sick and raise the dead and they would see it and yet they would shout for his crucifixion. He says in John 15, 24, now they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. The notion that man is good until he is led astray by his environment is proved false by scripture, man despises God. Man does not want to be bound by God's law and resists that and transgresses it out of his hatred for it. Apart from the saving work of Christ, there is nothing an unbeliever can bring to God that is good, that is done out of a heart that is genuinely loving God and loving neighbor. Second line of thinking, this one's a little shorter. Second line of thinking is that man's evil can be fixed with the right reforms in laws and structures and systems. In other words, apart from the new birth, apart from anything supernatural, man's evil can be fixed with the right reforms in laws and structures and systems. Let's be really clear here. This is not ignoring the biblical calls to love mercy and do justice. As believers in Jesus Christ, there is a place for engaging with our society and for making the case for reforms in laws and structures and systems because we do understand that one of the things laws do is they provide restraint they are designed to, we talked about this back when we looked at the church and politics back in February, the government should have a place in encouraging right behavior and discouraging bad behavior and providing sort of boundaries on that. And so there is a work for believers in Jesus Christ. We more than anyone should want to speak out for truth and righteousness and justice um, to the degree that God enables and empowers us to do that, we should engage. We should speak up. But I want to frame this all within what we've just said about the, the nature of man and the depravity of man. Our understanding of the nature of the unbelieving world should also remind us not to put all of our hope in reforms of laws and policies and structures and systems. Our ultimate hope our ultimate despair does not rest in a Supreme Court decision, a political party, or an election. All of those 
affect us. We have responsibilities as citizens to participate in those in various ways, but they are not the source of our ultimate hope or ultimate despair because fundamentally, we believe at the heart of all that is unjust and evil, whether it's racial injustice or sexual abuse or corruption or violence or murder or lying or cheating, at the heart of all of that is a heart of evil that rejects God. It is a heart that is turned in rebellion against him and a heart that is desperately in need of being made right with God. That at the core of our society is an unbelieving faithlessness in God. The, 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 perhaps the one good thing that's come out of the sort of cultural shift of the last decade or so is that the, the polling now reflects more accurately the fact that less and less people put the label of Christian on their lives as in terms of Bible-believing Christian. They're more willing to, to shed that and, and, and be something or anything else and reject that. And the, the, our, our country for such a long time sort of had that guys that label over everything, that it's just all Christian, that it's a majority Christian nation. The reality is we are not, and it is this unbelieving nature that we need to come to grips with that, that infiltrates everything about our society around us. Let me just show you it from Psalm 51. David, Psalm of Confession, right? David was anointed by God to be king over Israel. David is given great authority as king, and clearly uses some of that for good. He is a good steward in many ways of the authority God has given him because he is described as a man after God's own heart. And yet we also know that David took the authority that God gave him and he perverted it for his own gain. And he took a woman who was not his wife and then had her husband killed. David violated the woman and he killed her husband and after he was confronted with Nathan in his psalm of confession in Psalm 51.4, David said, Against you, O God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David defiled Bathsheba and he killed Uriah, but fundamentally taking Bathsheba and killing Uriah are sin. They're evil because the creator has defined them as sin, because it is God's law that David Broke, not just some man-made set of, of mores that we say, well, this, this, maybe this is okay, or we're not really sure about this. Um, it, it, God's law defined David's actions as evil. God drew the lines, and David transgressed those lines in defiance of God and acted out of a, a perverse desire to take the power God had used him and to misuse it. Sinful hearts generate selfish desires and rebellion against God. And so when unbelievers whose hearts are turned against him have the opportunity, they will perpetuate their own desires, even at the cost of others, certainly at the expense of loving God, but even at the cost of others. So society reflects the wickedness of man's fallen heart. Al Mohler wrote this several weeks ago, and I think it's helpful. Human sinners together form societies, neighborhoods, Villages, institutions, congresses, legislatures, laws. We also bring that sinfulness into the making of laws and into the establishment of policies. And, and so the structures and the systems around us are influenced by hearts that are in rebellion to the creator and that do not love neighbor. And so slavery and then segregation and then discrimination right alongside of 
um, the, the federal government codifying sexual sin as now being legitimate or abortion. These are all the structural societal fruits of sinful human beings writing and enforcing laws in defiance of God and his law, making our own preferences, selfish desires, and, and satisfying them to be preeminent over everything else. The structures reflect the nature of the people. So what do we do as believers in Jesus Christ? I just want to give you three quick applications. None of these are earth-shakingly new in any case, but just want to try to put these together for you as we think about man and his evil and what we are called to do in the light of this. Three applications. First, we should actively oppose violence, injustice, discrimination, and the legalization of sexual immorality and the disregard of human life and all else that runs contrary to the righteousness and the will of God. Based on God's teaching that all human beings are made in the image of God, that they are created beings made by God, we should be fearless advocates for truth and righteousness and justice and kindness. And, and that is especially true to remind ourselves of in this period when it feels like it's getting harder to do those things. This is where Galatians 6.9 comes in when it says, do not grow weary in doing good. We must not grow weary of loving and praying for our unbelieving neighbors, lo loving them by serving them, by showing them the love of Christ as we are called to do. We don't throw our hands up in anger or defeat or fear and, and sort of revert back to the survival of the fittest or uh, we'll just win this all back in November and we'll, we'll, we'll get it there. Uh, our, our calling is to actively love others and to pursue justice and truth and righteousness in any way that God enables us to do so. The, the chief difference between believers in Jesus Christ and the rest of the world beyond the, the, the being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, the, 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 the fundamental difference is we now understand the problem lies in the lost and sinful hearts of unbelievers for which their only real hope for forgiveness and reconciliation and peace and life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anything less than that only fixes the surface. It's, it's sort of the, the Pharisees thing of, of you know, cleaning around the edge of the cup and not worrying about what's on the inside. We understand as believers in Jesus Christ that yes, there are societal things we should speak to and reforms and laws that we should speak to and, and, and be engaged in when we can. But ultimately, fundamentally, man needs Christ. He needs the forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must be proclaiming that gospel. We also believe that the world remains a fallen and broken place and that it will until Jesus returns to establish his eternal kingdom. That's the, the third piece of this in terms of application, that we be a forward-thinking people in terms of our anticipation of the return of Christ, that we understand that that is when indeed this creation is transformed. In the meantime, the work will not be easy. Have you ever owned a home, owned a car, owned, owned anything that is subject to rust or wear or mechanical breakdown. Owned any of that? And you understand the elements of a fallen world. 
you understand how things break down. Robin and I were out digging yesterday for what was a, a, a drainage issue that surfaced after all of the rain of this past week. And as we were digging, we were digging along a fence line. And the more we dug, the more we realized that the, the whole bottom of this fence was just rotting away, that the, the wood at the bottom was just deteriorating right before our eyes. And I know, you know, I, I, looking at that fence, I know that at some point, no doubt in my lifetime, some previous homeowner invested money and they built this beautiful fence and it was new treated wood and it looked great and it was wonderful at the time and now it is rotting and it is in need of replacement. This is life in a fallen world. And so we need to remember that our efforts against injustice and evil and unrighteousness are like fence building and fence mending. They keep happening. We keep coming back and the same sorts of things keep happening and, and we keep having to stand up for truth. We don't, we don't reach a point on this side of eternity when we can say, there now, done. That, that Supreme Court ruling, that election, that law, that solves it, and now truth and righteousness shall reign, and we'll never have to build that fence again, never fight that battle again. We know that's not the case. History has shown us that's not the case. But the thing we do know as Christians is there is a hope beyond this life. There is a day when there are no more rotting fences and there are no more rotting bodies that are growing old and deteriorating, where the Temptation and weariness of sin is gone. One of the songs that was echoing in my mind as I was thinking about these things this week is Handel's chorus from, from the great Messiah. When he quotes in that chorus, the, you can hear them singing this, Revelation eleven fifteen. that day we look forward to. It says, there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of our world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That must be in our minds as our focal point, that we are, we are desiring to be a part of God's work of making disciples to rescue people from out of the depravity of this world and to point them toward the coming of Jesus Christ. Until Jesus returns, by God's grace, we are here. He has not taken us out of this world, but rather he has filled us with his spirit. He has given us his word. He has promised his own presence to never leave us or forsake us through the presence of his spirit. And he has called us to make disciples by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may God help us to do that, to urge people to repent of their sin and to believe in Christ and to find this hope for peace, and reconciliation, and righteousness, and judgment that is only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, help us as believers in Jesus Christ to be a people who would not allow the headlines of the day or the rhetoric of politics or the current popular opinions to drag us into evil thinking, despair, a sense of anger. Lord, help us to be a people who truly believe that, that our king the one whom we are trusting in Jesus Christ, that one day the, the kingdom of this world will be swallowed up and will become the 
kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Lord, with that hope, we have every reason to face the next hours, the next week, the rest of this year with hope that our king is on his throne and that he has given to us a a message of good news to be ambassadors of that will genuinely change hearts. Help us to, to not shy away from speaking out for truth and justice and righteousness, that we would love mercy and do justice. But in so doing, help us to attribute the reasons we do these things, not to something about ourselves, but to our Savior and to the grace of God who is at work in us and who empowers us to do these things. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have in you for taking upon yourself the wrath of your Father against our sin. It's in your name and for your glory that we pray. Amen.